Hey, everybody, welcome into the Raw Knuckles podcast. We'd really appreciate it if you'd like, subscribe, and share with a friend. Who knows? Maybe he stays in the wing, maybe he goes back to center. Uh, my hope is at, at, at some point, whether it's this year or next, that he goes back to the middle and uh, becomes um, what we think he can become as a centerman. But listen, he's a great fit with those guys anyway. So one way or the other, it's a win. When I stepped on the ice, I never backed down and I never stayed down. And I was vicious, and I was malicious, and I don't care. I'm alive. He's a freaking madman. Look at him going to town. That'll be a suspension. That'll be a fine. Alive, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive. Yeah, welcome into the Raw Knuckles podcast. Uh, just awesome that you took the time out of your schedule to join me. Uh, I appreciate it. So. No problem. But let's start. I want to start. Listen, you know, I want to start back in the West Island, uh, growing up here in Montreal and knowing what it was like. And I'm assuming you were a Habs fan growing up. What's that like growing up as a Habs fan out here in the West Island? I mean, it's, you know, much the Canadians were always everywhere, right? And, And especially kind of in the formative years, in the 70s, when I was first kind of being introduced to hockey, I mean, they were winning Stanley Cups. It was like a, was like a birthright here to, to win Cups. And um, so hockey was always everywhere. The Canadians were always everywhere. And it, it, uh, it, it goes a long way, I think, in terms of cementing that passion for not just for the Canadians, but for the sport of hockey, because it was they were so successful and uh, adored here in Montreal. So you grew up there, you play uh, Bantam, double-A, play with the Royals, then the Lac St. Louis Lions. Now, as a young kid growing up on the West Island, you must have had aspirations. Like any Quebec hockey player, they want to play for the Habs. Was that your case? Yeah, definitely. I um, I think I said, uh, I was telling somebody once, it took me a little longer than everybody else to figure out that I wasn't going to play for the Habs or in the NHL. Uh, but sometimes uh, ignorance is bliss if you're going through life thinking you're better than you are. Yeah. Well, you know, every kid has that dream. It's like me growing up in Boston wanting to be a Bruin and then um, having my dreams dashed by getting drafted by the Canadians. But uh, <laughs> it, it turned out um, for the best, for sure. So, you know, you went the college route, uh, Middlebury College. I had a good friend, Jack Doyle, who went there. Um, mm-hmm. He played hockey there, Jackie. He, he majored in uh, Russian, minded in finance. Uh, great language school, right? And then mm-hmm. <clears throat> you go off to BC and um, you get your uh, Juris Doctor degree uh, from Boston College. Uh, being a Huntington Hound, not too impressed. Um, <laughs> wow. I transferred over there. My boy for that. So. But uh, so so you're in college, you're getting your law degree. W- what are your aspirations there when you're uh, that, you know, getting out of school? Where do you want to go? What, what do you want to do with your life? So I actually had decided I wanted to uh, I wanted to stay involved in hockey. I kind of, you know, I remember maybe my mom was trying to uh wake me up to the fact that I wasn't going to play in the NHL when my college career was coming to an end. And she had said, you know, you've always been so passionate about hockey and you've always been a really good student. Like how, how, how do you 
mix the two and uh, use your brain to be involved in hockey. And I said, oh, I'm going to go play in Europe. And I could see the look on her, her face wasn't necessarily uh, approving of it. But in, in any event, um, I, I spent that year thinking about, like, how do I do this? How do I stay involved in hockey? Do I coach? Do I do this? And ultimately, you know, my brother at the time was a was an early pick of the Nordiques. And I had a lot of friends, the guys that I played in Lexington Louis, like Enrico Ciccone and Eric Charon and Dominic Roussel. There were a lot of guys around, Marty Lapointe back in the time, guys that uh, were playing in the NHL. So I started asking them, like, what, what does your agent do? And, you know, what, you know, trying to understand that profession a little bit better. And then ultimately decided, like, in order to do it well, I should go to law school. So when I went to law school, I was, you know, kind of committed to uh, to going down the path of, of being a hockey agent as opposed to uh, practicing law. And for two years, my last two years at BC, I actually worked for a guy named Jay Fee, yeah. who you saw no, at Cam Hill and some of the other guys. So that uh, I, I had my foot in it for a couple of years before I graduated. So your apprenticeship with him and now um, you graduate and you get out on your own. Did you stay with Jay or you went on your own? No, I went on my own. Jay was with a law firm at the time. Yeah. And then he was, you know, the Bobby Orr and Larry Moulter and those guys were buying Bob Wolf and Associates. And that was kind of a, a, a project in the works. And I felt like, geez, I got I to get working here. Yeah. Um, so I got an opportunity through BC had a sports law professor at the time that was the president of the American Sports Lawyers Association by the name of Bob Barry. Yeah. And Bob consulted with a group out of Florida called Impact Sports. And and actually one of them was a former, ironically, these guys actually worked at Bob, Bob Wolf and Associates at one point, went off on their own. And uh, Mitch Frankel was a former BC law guy and, and Presser Barry connected us and the rest is history. I went and I, that's how I started. So you uh, sat yeah. with them, but, you know, to get that, did they hand you the first clients or did you have to? rink rat it and really go out and pound the pavement and, 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 you know, get your own guys. Oh, I, I, I rink rat it. You know, the first kind of significant client uh, ended up being, a, you know, interestingly enough, a Montreal Canadiens draft pick, a second round pick by the name of Gregor Baumgartner and uh, a fellow Boston guy, Timmy Burke, who had yep. recruited me to go to Princeton uh, back in the day. I ran into him in the rinks and he's like, what about the 16 year old playing at Clarkson? Get on him. <laughs> so, oh. that's, that was the first client. But yeah, it, there was a lot of, uh, it was funny, Chris, because you know, when I was in law school, I studied everything and anything that had anything to do with, with sport, the business of sport and the law of sports. So antitrust and labor law and, and uh, contracts and contracts, drafting, entertainment, sports, tax, estate planning, everything. And I go to my first recruiting meeting ever out in, uh, it was actually in Quebec, in St. Eustache, and it was a family of a young goalie. And back then, Jill Lupien had all the goalies in Quebec. Yeah. So we go in and, and uh, try to pitch him, and had a great two-hour meeting. All we did was talk about hockey for two hours. We get back in the car, and the guy that was doing some scouting for me, he goes, that was great. And I said, great. We didn't even talk business. All we did was talk about <laughs> hockey for two hours. We'll never get him. Yeah. And he started laughing. He's like, well, I think they, you know, they think you're bilingual and you got a law degree and they, they wanted to make sure they could connect with you as a person. I, I went home, said to my wife, I just got my first lesson in sales, I think. Yeah. 
So that's funny, Berkey. Berkey was my roommate, my first year pro. And was he really? And I'm telling you, um, he helped me like you would not believe, because uh, I was so ignorant of the pro game and all that went into it. And we had a coach named Bert Templeton down in Halifax my first season. And I got sent there. And he, uh, Bert didn't like college kids. So Berkey told me, he said, listen, get in the back of the line. Don't get him. Don't be the first in the drill. Watch and then do it because this guy does not like college kids. So who's first in line and screws up the drill? Richie Costello. He went to Merrimack. Oh, nice. He went to Merrimack, right? And mm -hmm. Richie goes and does a drill and he screws it up. And Bert Templeton blows the whistle. He goes, Costello, Costello, what the fuck are you doing, you dumb fuck? You're a college kid. You're supposed to be smart. Get in the end of the fucking line. He was gone the next day, Richie Costello. He was just, no been, yeah, he was out of there the next day. And Berkey, look, I, I mean, okay, I get it now. But um, <laughs> Timmy Burke, it, it, we're such good friends. And over the years, um, it's funny, come here a few times and stay with me. And Jamie, my girlfriend, says, I, I've never heard. He, he'll come here and stay, you know, overnight. We'll have dinner. He said, I never heard two people talk so much. We never stop. And Timmy just, you know, he reminds me of old Prof Caron with the Canadians. I think that's yeah. where he got it, honestly. But so the, the, the agent business, you get going, you build it up. Your first real big client is um, Vincent, I take it, Vincent LeCavier. Yep. And and yep. then you get going and you're, you're going good in that business. Uh, you're living down in the Boston area. Um a lot of people go to college there. They end up loving it and staying there. Is that what happened with you? Yeah. Any thought yeah. of coming back home or none of that? Um, you know, at, at the time, I thought Boston was a really good place to be from an agent perspective, because at the time, as you you know, as you know, the American Hockey League was all over Massachusetts, right? And and uh, it was easy. Sherbrooke was as it is now in the Quebec League. I could drive to Sherbrooke from from where I was in three and a half hours. So I could I could and they ultimately went to Lewiston for a period of time. Right. Which put it put a team even closer. So I felt like I'd always get back to Quebec business wise. Uh, but then I could it was just easier to fly everywhere out of Boston, too. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, it had uh, become like a second home to me. So. Uh, I know I, I stayed, but I was up and I remember, and I actually talked to Ray, I ended up representing Ray's sons, Chris and Ryan. Yeah. I remember golfing with Ray and saying this to him at one point, I used to always, you know, I spent a lot of time in Montreal, even though I was living in Boston, my wife's from Montreal originally. And, and I would say to her, I'm going home. I'm going to go home for a few weeks and recruit. And one point now we got three kids and we're living in Boston and she starts laughing. She goes, by the way, uh, Boston, this is home now. Like, you're going to Montreal. <laughs> yeah. So uh, is it West Westwood? Did you live? Yeah. 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 Uh, good friend of mine lives there. Mike Daly. Good buddy. Um, but so the age of business, before we get into the real deal, what you're doing now, um, what's the toughest part of that business for the agent, I guess? You know, we often hear agents and they talking about their players, you know, always trying to talk a positive manner and promote those guys. What's the toughest part for you? Uh, 
you know what? I, I think probably trying to be trying to be as honest and candid with them when they need it and they don't necessarily want to hear it, uh, whether that be about you know the kind of the prospects moving forward with their career or you kind of often end up being um, like a, a, a father figure to these guys, right? Because you're, you're getting in at like 15 years of age, 16, sometimes 14. And depending on the player, you're just, you're, you're talking to them a lot. So you build up this relationship, but I always felt like you want to become, you know, like Vinny and I became friends yeah. over a period of time, yeah. but, but, I was also always able to be very direct and honest with them, whether it be on ice or off ice stuff. And uh, that always became a challenge like to be able to find, not everybody responds as well to, to criticism. Like, and I remember this, like it was yesterday. Uh, he was struggling. He was fighting with torts and you know, you're, you're trying to get in you want You want your client to believe that you got his back, but you also want to kind of say, Hey, like you got to own part of this too. And he also had to be better putting everything else aside. So I remember he called me. I was trying to help him. I'm, you know, I, I've described myself as a hockey nerd a few times here, but so I would watch his game and be like, listen, you're playing New Jersey. Like they put the Chinese wall up from goalie to goalie. Like if you want to touch pucks, you can't, he used to like puck would break out on the left side. He'd swing to the right. Yeah. He had this, you know, he was trying to create space all the time away from the puck. And I said, you do that. You're never going to see a puck. So he calls after a game. He was really struggling. So it was kind of an every night post game conversation during that period. I think it was for him, it was the first time facing adversity. I mean, it's kind of interesting for athletes, right? Because so much of, and I heard Kerry say this, so much of their identity is tied up in who they are as hockey players. So when you're struggling as a hockey player, it's like your whole life is struggling. Yeah. And so he called and I'm like, what were you doing? He's like, what? I said, what did I tell you that was going to happen in New Jersey? You didn't touch a puck. You were on the wrong side of the wall the whole night. And and then he has a really good self-deprecating sense of humor. So he goes, did I did I do anything right? Right? And I have a lot of speakers while my wife's listening. I'm like, did you call me to put my pom-poms on and be a cheerleader? You want to become a better hockey player. And so we hang up. My wife looks at me. She goes, oh, God, I just wish you were a little smarter than that. I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, he did call for a cheerleader. He didn't want to talk about hockey. He's struggling. He just needs help. He needs you to be a distraction, not to tell him how he screwed up. So uh, apparently I didn't know much about sales or uh, sports psychology at the time. But so so doing that, and, and that's, uh, again, you can see certainly you having a background in hockey and having played the game, that's one thing. How about some agents that, you know, they've never played the game? Do you think that can be somewhat of a hindrance? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on uh, what you perceive your role to be. Uh, you know, I think some people think it's just to negotiate contracts. And, and I, I never really saw it like that because especially in the era that like the last 15 years, like a lot of guys, you negotiate three contracts in their career, right? You know, if I look back to Vinny, you know, a three-year entry level, then a four-year deal, then a four-year deal, then an 11-year deal, and then he got bought out, so another one. So that that's that would be a lot of contracts um, to negotiate on behalf of a player. So I always felt that that the job was to if you don't if you didn't know hockey, I don't even think you could do a great job on the contract because you had to really forecast who your player is, what's he doing, what situations he playing in, is he better than he shows, is he 
you know, is he like, if we strike now, is it prime time to strike? Like we're going to sell him at the highest point and he probably not going to live up to, to the contract in terms of his play. Like, so I always felt like you can't sell cars. We don't know anything about cars. And if you, it's hard to be in the real estate game. If you don't know real estate, I think it's hard to be in, in the business of hockey, even as an agent without knowing hockey. So Vincent, so there was a time he, his contract was up and there was talk here in Montreal. I don't know if it's true, but that, um, you know, the Canadians want him. They wanted him to come here. And I'm sure he heard of it. Are you the bastard who talked him out of it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, I wouldn't say I was the bastard that talked him out of it. It was kind of a, uh, I was the bastard that structured his deal with Tampa in a way that it would have cost them money. It, it was because we, we had uh, back then everybody who did deals, they tried to front load signing bonus. And, and I always felt like signing bonus had three purposes to it. One was buyout protection and you were more likely to get bought out the back of your deal than the front. So let's, when you're signing a deal, that's going to take you to 41 years of age. You want your signing bonus on the back. I also felt it, it, um, was a little bit of insurance protection, right? Because yeah. a lot of athletes spend a lot of money on on disability insurance. But every year that you made however many millions of dollars, you knew that you were still guaranteed all this money on the back end. I felt like you'd save a few hundred thousand dollars on on uh, insurance disability. And ultimately, the biggest issue was was tax planning, right? Because yeah. we structured his uh, his language in a way that it was true signing bonus, like. You know, they basically, his right to that signing bonus vested when we signed the deal. He could have retired and left and they would have had to pay him. And we didn't do it to, for that purpose. We did it to when they, you know, when a team in, like Florida's got no state income tax, but those yeah. players still get taxed when you go on the road. You go to California and they're getting whacked yeah. for duty days, right? So every day it's one 187th or whatever of your, um, of your salaries deemed to have been earned. So I had been on with the California Franchise Tax Board along with the accountant that we worked with trying to understand at what point would you truly treat something as signing bonus and not tax it when the athlete came. No. And so that's that was the the structure of Vinny's deal when when he when we when he got bought out he still had whatever it was like I want to say 14 million or so of signing bonus that was due. And if he came if he went to Montreal then he would have had to, not just the salary he was earning here, like he was earning two million a year from Tampa plus all the uh, bio money. He would have had to pay taxes on all of that as well. Uh, so it just it, it put a layer of complication into it. Yeah, I guess so. And um, it, so that again, that um, it, a, a lot of guys didn't come here. I, mean, I know over the years, you know, there was talk about players coming and the tax ramifications, the language issue. Um, you know, especially American guys, oh, my kid got to go to school in French, which would, is a good thing, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yep. I think I think it scares some people off, though, when they don't really um, take the time to, to look into it and see how beneficial it could be for their children going to school here. But that being said, so you build up the, the great um, business and you've got a lot of players and life is good. Kids are growing up going off to college. Did you have any aspirations of getting out of that business and doing something else? And, and not, I'm not necessarily talking about being a GM, but 
all right, I've done this long enough. Uh, or I'm going to do this the rest of my, do you ever get bored of it? I don't think I got bored of it. Um, or maybe just want to do something else with, with, well, you know, what's funny. Cause I coached a lot, uh, coached my son's teams and then, and my daughter. And, and then when they were off, uh, doing other things, I, I continued to coach and, I coached, uh, you know, it was an 05 group for, for four years in Boston. I just, I love being involved. I just love going to the rink and one, working with the kids and being around it and, and the fun of being part of a team, but also, you know, the competitiveness of it all. Yeah. So in the back of my head, I kind of wondered if, if um, at some point I slowed down on the agency side a little uh, and maybe coached a prep school or something. Yeah. 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 So, um, you get that business going and, uh, you know, you were approached before by uh, Jeff Gordon when he was with the Rangers, uh, he kind of uh, reached out to you about maybe working with them and you didn't. And then all of a sudden, Jeff Gordon becomes executive vice president of Montreal Canadiens. And um, not too long after he reaches out to you. Now I'm here and I'm thinking, all right, um, I had, I had heard you as an agent. I didn't know the whole backstory, uh, but I'm their agent and general manager. Yeah, that could work, I guess. But all these other names were coming up there. They're pushing Patrick, they're pushing this one and that one. And, and, and your name had come up and then it kind of went away for a little bit. Did it ever go away in your mind when it first came, was brought to you? When Jeff came to you, what, what was, what was going? What was the conversation you had with yourself, and what was your heart telling you at the same time? You, you got the intellectual piece, and then that passion piece. What happened there when Jeff contacted you the first time? The first time I, I said no, um, and I, I said no maybe without thinking enough about it. I, I guess I always, you know, you know, dating back to when Jeff had first approached me with New York. Um, which is actually a funny story because I said no right away. And uh, he said, <laughs> you know, he goes, you know what? You're so arrogant. You didn't even ask how much for the New York Rangers. Not, not the, uh, we're not the Florida Panthers. And uh, I started laughing and I said, I'm so arrogant that I can't handle you being my boss unless I'm wearing a suit standing behind the bench. Oh. And he started laughing. He goes, we just let go Tortorella. We're not hiring Tortorella Jr. Yeah. So. Um, but I, I think the the reasoning for me, Chris, was just more family related, right? Like I, I felt like uh, early on, if I took a job like that, I would ultimately, I mean, job security is not great. Um, we really liked Boston. We liked where we were living and we were going to uproot the kids and, and uh, my wife and go somewhere and then probably be looking for a new job. So, you know, I... I uh, <clears throat> I probably didn't consider it because more for family reasons than anything else. Uh, and then when he called about Montreal, I was like, oh, my, my kids are, they're all in school in Boston. My daughter's yep. at BU, the boys are at Northeastern and it's, it's coming to an end. So I was like, a couple more years. And when Jeff called back again, he's like, timing's never going to be perfect. Uh, you know, you're, you're waiting for the perfect timing, but it may never happen. And it's Montreal. 
it's where you're from. It, it's the Montreal Canadiens. And there were a few people, like I, I mentioned that Billy Guerin, when he heard about it, called and said, are you, are you going to do this? And he was very positive and pushed me to do it. The other guy uh, was David Morehouse, who had been the president of the Penguins for a long time. And he, he, call, he kept calling me and saying, you got to do this. Like this, you, you're, you're going to do, you'd be really good at it. And you can't sit around waiting all the time. You may never get another call. So that was no, offense. that pushed you're you over so, the hump. Yeah. You know what he said to me? He goes, can I, you and I talk all the time. And he said, no offense. The only thing we ever talk about is hockey. He goes, that's all you talk about. Yeah. He's like, it's your passion. Just, just, you know, make that next step. So then I started thinking about it, talking to my wife about it. And uh, when Jeff called back and, and uh, said, so what do you think? I, I had said to him initially, go ahead and, you know, interview who, who you have to interview and I'll think about it, but I doubt I would do it. And then when he called back, I was like, I think I'm ready to, uh, to throw my name in the, uh, in the ring here and at least go through the process of interviewing. So you went through that process and uh, you sit down with a, I guess there was a group of people there, ownership and Jeff and, and I don't believe Bob Ganey, my former left winger there. Um, yep. Some guys were involved. Um, uh, the French piece, you know, that had to be talked about, right? Because again, here, you know, they, Jeff was high and everybody's talking about, well, we got to have a French GM. We got to have a French coach. I, I get it. Um, I get it sometimes. And then sometimes I don't, but it was almost like it wasn't good enough because here's a West Island. I've been living in Boston. You're not your typical good new, but you're bilingual. Mm -hmm. Um, did that, um, what did you think of that when you started hearing some of that stuff? That, that doesn't, I mean, like, that doesn't bother me. I'm not a, uh, I'm not an overly political guy. I mean, I, I, I get the, um, both sides of it, I guess. Uh, ultimately, you know, I'm not the, uh, I'm not the subject. I'm the object of that story. Yeah. yeah. Right. So whether it's me or somebody else that 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 is a uh, a political topic that doesn't really uh it, that didn't bother me or deter me like some people be like i can't believe yeah. uh you know uh, francois legault hasn't tw uh reached out to congratulate like, yeah. i personally i don't care i don't need to be congratulated and um yeah. so well it's funny you know and I'll just tell my own experience with it. And, and you grew up here. I didn't. And coming from Boston, me, I grew up in a very turbulent time, racially intolerant time uh, mm -hmm. between black people and white people in Boston and the busing, all that stuff. So I grew up in that environment. And when I came here, this is how young and naive I was. And there was the first referendum right around 79 and 80. Yep. And, I'm like, how come all these white people can't get along? I, I didn't get the whole, I, honestly, that's how naive I was when I got here. And then I started to um, understand it more. And, and certainly I'm not totally bilingual, but I, I can speak enough and understand enough to, to get by. But, geez, the, um, you know, I, I get where they're coming from. But I've looked over the years, too, here, and it, it always seemed like they hamstrung themselves because um, – you know, they, they, they couldn't take the best uh, person. And anyway, 
enough. That's done. You're here now. Um, and when you took this job coming in, what, what, what you, you have some butterflies coming up here that first time and uh, am I going to be accepted? Are they gonna, like, you must've been a little nervous. No. You know, it's funny. I, I, <laughs> I, I have a, a bridge phobia. Yeah. I struggle to drive over bridges. Okay. I was probably more nervous about <laughs> how I was going to get over the Champlain Bridge every day than anything else. Uh, in fact, funny story, because I left before Highway 30 was built and whatever. And obviously, you know, there's a lot of talk about a different way to get out to like the Hudson, St. Lazar and those parts west. So I called my wife's friend and I said, like, can I, I'm going to go see my parents. Can I get to the West Island without going over the Champlain and everything else? And I said, what if I just took Highway 30? So I drive like way out of the way. I'm going through Valley Field and all. And I look up uh, in the yeah. dark. And I, these lights going up in the air. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I got to go over a bridge anyways. I just went an hour out of my way. So I get home. My dad looks at me. He goes, did you really think you were getting onto an island without going over a bridge? Yeah. Uh, so, oh. um, no, I, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't overly nervous about it. I was a little bit nervous about the language, like just being able to answer questions in French and, and not um, stumble the first couple of times. Like they were coming in like with my prepared remarks at the beginning. And I, we, we kept, uh, I was like, I can't pronounce that word. Let's find a different word for it. Like I don't yeah. roll my R's very well. So uh, that part of it was uh, more nerve wracking than the, the uh, kind of the task at hand, yeah. I guess. Um, I think, you know, I, I kind of knew what we were going to do. And there's, there's, let's face it, there's a little bit of uh, reassurance when you come to a job like this and there's somebody like Jeff Gorton that's already here who's already done it and who I know very well and have known for a number of years. And we've talked a lot about hockey. And I knew we shared a lot of similar thoughts, but it's just, you know, I felt like you were, uh, there, there was always going to be a parachute. Yeah. There. And God, working next to a guy like him certainly, uh, yeah, that uh, that's a big boost in your corner for sure. That uh, with his track record, there's no question about. It. So you come in here, uh, the team went to Stanley Cup final. We know what happened. Jeff came in, let go, Bergie. Uh, you come in, and then um, you know there was kind of a vote of confidence uh, for the coach. And Dominic Deshaun was initially announced that he'd be retained for the remainder of the season. And and then all of a sudden, um, uh, you know losing seven straight games beginning of 2022 things weren't looking good at all uh you know coming in so listen you, you want to bring your own people i get that at some point you're going to give this guy a chance but that's really tough to watch the team you're taking over uh to manage now and they're in such disarray you got the salary cap to deal with you got you, you got to do this whole thing over and it, it, it's actually kind of good starting being able to start um, with a clean slate and then just build what you want to build here. And mm-hmm. how, how, um, how difficult was that? The first thing having to fire uh, Dominic Duchamp. Yeah, that was, I mean, I, I was probably, you know, Jeff, Jeff was the one that had come out and said before I got here that Dom would be there for the rest of the year. And then, yeah, when I got here, we started talking. I mean, I don't think we foresaw or Jeff foresaw like the depths of 
which the team would fall. I mean, it's one thing to be losing games. And and when I first got here, even like, I remember we went to, uh, we had just won in Dallas and we joined a team in Vegas and play a pretty good team in Vegas. And, and we, we, uh, we lost, but it was close. We went to Colorado and we lost, but it was close. And then Minnesota, we got walloped. Like it was worse than the score. I think it was eight to two. And then it just started to snowball. And I, I, I was more worried about just the locker room. It just felt like, you know, after games, it was, it was morbid. It was like, I didn't even want to go down. Yeah. It was depressing. So, you know, that's where I started thinking like, Hey, you know, talking to him saying, I know we're thinking this and we can reevaluate at the end of the year, but you know, how much damage are we doing? Like yeah. you know, we need, we need to do some things to make some changes and to, to let the players know we're not just sitting on our hands here that, you know, we're working on their behalf. So, yeah, and certainly when it when it gets – when looking from the outside, you can see it. I mean, you know, you've seen it before as an agent. You can see it when the players, uh, they're not responding and they weren't. So you make that move and you go to a, um, a, a guy you happen to know pretty well in Martin St. Louis and, you know, <laughs> I you look at it now, it, it's a brilliant move. You looked at it then, I think a lot of people scratch their head and say, oh, he's coaching kids. But, I mean, when you look at the kids he's coaching now, there's a lot of kids he's coaching. And and talking to some of them guys, they talked about the first time he came in the room and spoke. What went in your decision to, to, to bring Marty in? And, again, I, we know he's a character guy, um, but could he come in and do that job? What gave you that confidence that he could do that? Well, I always felt that one, I knew Marty well. Um, I knew him well as a person, but also as a hockey guy. Uh, I mean, heck, I used to, you know, I've known him since he was a teenager. I used to come back. Ironically, uh, when I was in, in Middlebury, my brother and I would come home in the summer times and we would coach a travel team. And I coached, um, among others from around here, like hockey guys like PJ Stock, but JF Wool, who's our coach in the American Hockey League. And we would play against Marty all the time. And that's when I first started to like, wow, this guy's good. And uh, anyways, our paths crossed a lot. He ended up at UVM, then Tampa. And I was in Tampa a lot. And and then post-playing days, we were coaching against each other all the time. But we spent a lot of time talking about hockey. I always knew he had a, a special hockey mind. And I would talk to Vinny about it And when we started thinking that we might need a change. And I said, am I crazy? And Vinny's point was that maybe somebody's better today to coach one game, but nobody has the potential to be as good as Marty. He's like, he's got one of the best hockey minds. I'm like, okay, great. So, you know, we see the same way in that. And then when Jeff and I started talking, I said, listen, we need change here. I think Marty would be really good. I don't think we could ever hire Marty if we wait to the end of the year and he's got to go up against everybody we have the perfect opportunity to figure out if he's good. Let's hire him on an interim basis. And he comes in, if he's good, great. And uh, if he's not, then, you know, if, if, if we're wrong about this, then at the end of the year, we'll go through a more thorough search for a coach. And, and that that's really how, how uh, that came to be. Jess said, I want to talk to Marty one more time. And he went and met with him. And then we had to convince Marty to bet on himself and come. Yeah, was he? How was that? Was he a little reluctant? Was he like, you know, I'm coaching my kids. I'm, 
I don't want to do this now. Or did you have to twist his arm a little bit? Um, I felt like Marty was going to coach no matter what. He just had too much. Um, it's just it's in his blood, right? The sport. So the bigger issue for him was really taking it on an interim basis for fear that the players wouldn't take him seriously because he was just an interim tag. And I read all kinds of things from, we hired him to just be our eyes in the dressing room and tell us everything. And none of which was true. Um, so I, you know, he said, I'm not afraid to bet on myself. I just don't want to be set up to fail because I don't get the credibility of the players. And I, you know, I remember the conversation just saying, see, at some point you have to be able to trust and uh, that I'll make sure that doesn't happen. And, and that's awesome getting that kind of support. And when I, when I've talked to, you know, I've talked to Nick Suzuki, I've talked to Weidman, I've talked to a few, few of them, Caulfield, they, you know, and, and they didn't go into detail, but I said, I heard about the coach coming in that first um, speech he gave to the team and, and <laughs> Weidman told me, he said, I have never heard anything like that before come out of a coach's mouth. So he obviously, and, and the three of them were, you know, adamant about that, how how refreshing it was to hear that. Because we look at old school coaches. The league is changing. I get it. Kids are a little different today with, with um, the way they're brought up and and how that impacts their lives moving forward. But, you know, you're looking at, um, you know, the old school coaches. I love Lemire. I was a Lemire disciple, right? I love Jacques Lemire. He, he had the trap, you know, the, he, he used it well. He implemented that. He, he won championships with it. And some, some uh, around the league copied it. And certainly they, it was kind of, you know, they got a lot of blame for dumbing the game down and making it too slow. And, you know, what, what did you think of that whole era with the trap? And now you're coming in and it's more wide open, more creative, um, game than it was I think back then but then the flip side of that is I heard Bobby O say he'd like to see the red line back in so teams coming up the ice together would have to pass their way out of trouble and through the neutral zone and there's a lot there to unpack I guess I don't know if I'm clear in my question no I I I, I hear what you're, what you're saying I'm uh I like offense I think that's, you know, we're still in the entertainment business. And I, and I think clearly the league thinks that they try all kinds. Of, they look at all kinds of different ways to, to increase goal scoring. I, I don't think about it so much as goal scoring. I think about it in terms of the offense. It's just, you know, how, how many opportunities are generated, whether they go in or not. I think the excitement is, is in watching the game. It, it's, it's a beautiful, like, Again, I grew up in the seventies with, mm. with you know the the flying Frenchman, and and the hockey was so fun to watch. I think if you took the red line away, t teams are so good, you know, structurally, defensively, that they would eat the ice up on us. I, I really feel like forcing a team to defend the greatest surface possible yeah. allows for more offense. Yeah. You know, like. I, there's a lot of things that I have, you know, over the years of coaching thought through and said, like, we all grew up, Chris, right? Head man the puck. Yeah. Head man yeah. the puck. And without a red line, um, 
even if there were, like, I don't believe in that so much anymore. I, I think that players are, I call them false fronts, call them whatever you want, stretch guys. But a lot of times they're not intended to get the puck. They're, they're pushing back and back off. to create space underneath so that we can come up with speed and support around them. Uh, so I, I actually think you can do that uh, and pass your way through the neutral zone. And that's what, you know, we're trying to do and build a team that can do that and play that style. It uh, doesn't mean that you're not going to put pucks into areas at times uh, too, but um, but I worry that without a red line, they could shrink the ice too much. Yeah, for sure. And I hear I hear that for sure. Um, looking at uh, your first draft now, you come take over this team. That first draft, uh, everybody <laughs> is thinking uh, that the Canadians are going to pick Shane Wright. I remember speaking to Jeff for an hour, and he didn't tell me anything. He just said one thing he told me. He said, this team has to get bigger. So I'm like, oh, okay. Um, now, what went into that decision? And and it, is it you and Jeff sitting there really hashing this out, the scouting staff? It, did some guys go against it. Some guys want it. Some guys want it right. Some guys didn't think Slavkowski would be the guy. What went into that decision? Because it surprised a, a whole lot of people. Well, we we, we really, um, even before the season, I mean, like Jeff and I drove to uh, Kingston a couple of times to watch Shane play. Uh, we, Nick Bobroff came with, with us once only because Nick joined later in the, in the uh, season, right? He must have joined us at some point in February. So our guys had already been in, but the kind of the new sets of eyes being Jeff and Nick, I had seen Shane, you know, my, my son played against him and a lot growing up or in different events. And, um, and then I had been at events just from a work perspective, like the Canada games or the U 17 world. So I, I had seen him a number of times. Uh, I think ultimately we, and I knew Cooley because he played with my, you know, he played up a lot. Yeah. He was, uh, four team and my guy was on the threes but he was up a lot it was the covid year there were injuries and sickness um so we wanted to we wanted to do a homework we wanted to get it right like you don't get the number one overall pick every year and we wanted to get it as right as we could right because you know who knows who ends up being the best hockey player when their careers are over maybe somebody that went in the third round for yeah. all we know but we went and we watched a lot. We watched a ton on video. Vinny was very involved uh, as well, uh, mostly from a video standpoint. But nowadays, like the, the value of video in some of these software programs is that you can really look at a guy. You can look at his own entries. You can look at, uh, you know, defensive play. Uh, you can just watch his shifts. You don't have to watch a 60-minute game. So in an yeah. hour, you might be able to see three games worth of hockey. Um so we did a ton. And then when we started to sense, like Jeff and I went to the U18s in Germany along with the scouts. Yeah. And then we went back to Finland for the, for the worlds, got to see Slavkovsky play. Uh, and as we sensed that we were going towards, like it just seemed like the momentum was moving a little bit towards uh, your eye. We actually went the other way, right. And started challenging them saying like, okay, maybe Shane didn't have the best year, but he's been, you know, he's done it all the way through. Let's find games uh, this season and prior seasons where he was playing and, and let's evaluate it. And are we still going with Slavkovsky? 
So I would, you know, I saw him play a game against Mississauga. I want to say it was in March. He played really well. And I texted everybody saying, can you guys watch this game? Um, and so it was a pretty, listen, we weren't in the playoffs, obviously. That's why yeah. we were picking number one. So we had enough, we had the luxury of time to really drill down and, uh, and try to make sure that we dotted the I's and crossed the T's in terms of due diligence. And, and we did. And then there was character components to it. And, um, they were all great guys, yeah. you know, Shane seemed like a really nice guy. Logan Cooley seemed like a great guy too. Uh, for me, I feel the one thing I just, so what separate, about, what's say, say they're all good character guys. What, what's separates them. And cause again, I, I'm not going to say you don't draft by need, but this team needed to get bigger. They needed talent, uh, obviously. Um, but what separates them when you're that close? Say you got four guys here and you're like, okay, just say Cooley right and uh, Slavkovsky. Like they all got character. They're all what separates them. And and, and you say well, that's what I'm I'm gonna do. I think you, you they're different players, right? Yeah. Shane's gonna play Shane's game, and and Logan Cooley's gonna play his game, and and Uri's gonna play his game. Um, I guess ultimately we were betting on your I, you know his game being most translatable in our opinion okay okay and and, and it's we're splitting hairs here yeah they, they were all hockey players but like the character piece to me is a factor you're coming to montreal you're going to deal with tons of pressure um and you have to think about i loved it when he came in the day of the thing i said what do you love about hockey and he said, I love being on the ice in the last five minutes of a game when we're up four to three. And I love being on the ice when we're down four to three. And that just resonated with me because so many people, I feel like in today's game, like they're worried about how many goals, how many assists and worried about it. And it's, and when you get to the business side of it, it becomes even more natural to be more focused on yourself. Cause you score more, you do this more, you make more money. Um, but at the end of the day, for us to win, we need guys that are that are committed to winning first and foremost, above everything else, that are going to put some of their individual uh, needs and wishes aside to be able to put the team first. Yeah. And, and I just felt like just it just resonated. This guy is like a hockey player. He wants to play hockey. Yeah. Uh, and you can see his uh, – yeah, listen, when, when I heard him, he said at 16 years old, he he lived on his own in Finland. I I couldn't believe that. He had his own apartment, right? 14. 14 years on his own. He uh, went to Austria first. Yeah, it's crazy. Like who does that? Like you, you never see that when you know families letting their kid go and he lived in his own apartment, cooked for himself. I mean that that's impressive. It says a lot. And and making those moves and all right, so you pick your edge. Did you know what I want to ask? Did did any part of you want to draft your son um this year he was drafted the second round right northeastern did any part of you ever consider drafting your son because i mean come on montreal canadians yeah i i you know we talked about it um when i say we both internally uh as an organization but also kind of at home um with my wife and and uh i just you know ultimately 
more than anything else, people say, oh, it's going to be hard. There's there's that much extra pressure. I I wasn't, pressure's pressure. Like you're a professional athlete. You have tons of pressure to perform. I was more worried about like, could you be normal in the locker room or are all the guys going to be worried that they can't really hang with you? You know, the the great part about hockey and the camaraderie and all that kind of stuff. Do you, do you get deprived of that? Because they're worried that you're going back and telling your dad, this guy's out till, you know, four o'clock in the morning or he's this or he's not, you know, I didn't want that for him. And then I figured the other component was one day I'm going to lose my job and he's still going to be here. Seemed weird. Like if, if that ever happened. So um, I wanted to ultimately kind of put him in a situation where, you know, if he's lucky enough to, to be a pro hockey player and make it that he can live that experience and not, not have like an asterisk and things that could be taken away from the experience. Yeah, it certainly makes sense. And cause I, you know, I looked when I first started here, boom, boom was the coach. Mm-hmm. And Danny was the first round pick the year. I was uh, the same year I was drafted 78 and man, that was difficult. He had a son there and he was playing him and he wasn't playing him. And it was, it caused some, some issues. And I think it really hurt the boomer. Um, you know, because there were times he was taking heat for playing his son and, and then having to sit him out. It was a, it was a difficult situation. So, yeah, I was just curious of that. Um, so you guys certainly have, I think, exceeded expectations in the early goal here. And I don't want to get ahead of myself. And I don't want to say, oh, way to go. You won the cup already because you haven't. But, geez, <laughs> look at this team. They're ex- exciting as hell to watch. Um, they, they, you know, certainly some nights they've struggled to score goals, but it just seems like with all these young guys in the lineup, man, to see these guys three, four years, this group grow together as a core, man. And and to add to that, I I just, as you move on, I, I look at the health of the, the, the minor league team and the number of players you have this team has not and i'm not kicking bergy i'm not but the, the team sucked in the american league for for the last i don't know how many since bergy was here it seemed like he never stockpiled those picks and then you know yeah he made some great trades there's no question but there was you could never go pluck somebody from down below and bring them up and you know have an impact somewhat and and it seems in the early go here, it seems like there's a lot of good young prospects here. And we always hear about that. Like, oh, that's how you're gonna rebuild the team. You gotta draft well. And but boy, it seems like you guys really come out of the gate flying as far as that goes. Well, I mean, in again, in fair in fairness to um some of the young players, like I'd love to take credit for them, but you know, we didn't bring Gooley here. And no. I, when I say we, I mean, yeah. Jeff and I were part of that draft process. Yeah. A lot of the scouts that are on our staff were part of that scouting staff that, that drafted them. Obviously Trevor was the head guy. Um, so I think, I think there, there was a nucleus of good young players that were about to come. And I think that the benefit that uh, we had is you come in, maybe Montreal as a, as a city, the fan base was, a little bit more ready than it's ever been before um, to potentially take a step backwards in order to take a step forward. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I hear a lot of chatter that 
we're taking too we're we're going too fast and and uh you know we, we need to get the number one pick or we yeah, need no, Connor Bedard. No, no thank you not not it's that sad. i wouldn't i wouldn't accept that but i i don't i've i've heard it before you know you want to teams want to dog it all yeah to to get the first i i just that's a bad mentality it's it's not a winning mentality down the road. It, it sends a bad message, right? It's funny. Jeff said uh, hockey gods last year when we were doing is like, you know, I feel like if, if you were intentionally tanking, the hockey gods would, would make sure you didn't have the first pick and, and, you know, good karma. We ended up getting it this year or last season. And, and, um, but I think as a bigger piece to me, when you're coming into this year is like, we, we have these young players their development is critical. And I think probably the biggest shift that, that we've tried to, to bring here is the focus on development, developing hockey players. And, and that, that's not limited to young hockey players. Like, you know, we're working with, with Josh Anderson on parts of his game, or you hear Marty talk about, you know, Galley modifying his game. He talked about it a little bit last night. So, I'm a big believer. Like when, when I'm watching games, if I see things player wise, like I'm texting Adam Nicholas or whatever and saying, Hey, you know, so-and-so we gotta, we gotta try to work with them on this. And so, you know, you got to coach a team, but I also think you got to coach players and, and Marty does that. And we've given him enough support around both with the coaching group are all really good teachers, right? Like uh, Trevor, Burr, Roby, they're all really good. And then we've got, the staff around them and we'd like to continue to, you got Mary Philip Poulet and you got Adam and you got Scott Pellerin and all these guys that are on the ice. And then we've got our development guys that are like Rammer and Frankie that are out and Nick Carey that are talking to the guys every day with the prospects. So I guess we're really focused on saying, Hey, we're going to draft these, these players. We're going to bring them into the organization. We can't assume they're finished products and every player can continue to get better. Okay. So, so that's what we're in that. Um, do you believe that w- with that coaching staff and say guys, say there were guys that aren't playing as often as others, or even guys in the minors, do you think that as well as the younger guys, some of the older guys, can they make those small incremental changes in their game um, in practice and over the course of time, especially let's say with older guys, how, how's that work? Well, I think I absolutely think you can. Um, I always thought that Brad Marchand was, you know, being in Boston, I saw a lot of the Bruins and I've watched his career. Heck, I watched his career from Valdor to Moncton to uh, Providence to Boston. Um, I, I feel like he's in his 30s. He's still adding elements to his game. And, and it's not like happenstance. Like you'll see him do this, like some kind of a play. And sometimes it just happens reactionary. Yeah. And you never see it again. What I've always noticed with Brad is whatever he had, like if he added an element to his game, he'd do it again the next game and he'd do it the next game. So uh, he, he's been one of the best at getting better, in my opinion. Yeah. And he continues to do that late into his career. Uh, Brad probably has help, but he also probably has a keen desire and a unique capability of, picking something and adding it to a game that's highly, you know, reactionary. Um, but yeah, like we've looked at, at Andy and said, okay, he, Andy's pretty good off the rush. And, but with his size and physique, 
we think he could be better at extending plays, right? Protecting pucks and doing those types Off of things. The cycle. And, yeah. And what, what I think, again, when you coach young players all the time, you, you learn it because habits develop. Like Andy's really fast. Yeah. So even though he's really big, my guess is Andy escaped with his feet a lot when he was young. Yeah. And when you're when you have that escapability, you just escape all the time and you don't learn that aspect of the game the same way. But then you get to the National Hockey League and other than Connor McDavid or you know, a couple others, there aren't that many that escape. Yeah. So um, you know, so we'll work with Andy on, on that thing. You know, we may look at somebody like Joel Armia and say, you know, we're noticing tendencies in his game. If we could change this and that, we could make him that much more effective. Like he's a really talented hockey player. Yeah, he is. I always thought so, that's a guy that you can win with and will be standing at the end when you win a Stanley Cup. You need players like that. Yeah. But it, it can be frustrating too. And I'll just say from watching him, he got all the talent in the world. I seen him kill penalties one night. I'm like, this reminds me of Bobby Orr back in the day. He could hang on to the puck. People couldn't get it from him. And then, you know, it's that consistency that we try and get out of players, right? Night in and night out. I had Lemire tell me. He, he, he came to me. And it's tough to be honest, get a player to be honest with themselves, right? And and he, Lemire came to me one night. He said, hey, how do you think he played tonight? And I said, I'm not bad. I've had better game, but not bad. He said, are you kidding me? Come on, be honest with yourself. I said, what? He said, you stunk tonight. I was like, I was like wounded, right? <laughs> I'm like, but he said, Chris, listen, here's what I'm going to do. A game like tonight, we got 80 games. I'll, I'll, I'll let you have one of those every 10 games. So that's eight a year. He said, this gives you something to shoot for. You can't let it slip. You have one bad game, you can't let it slip. you got to bounce back right the next. He was so good with me. Like, it's things I never thought of, right? And he, he really, he, he, he made it, I'll let you have one of them, but you can't let that go into a patent. And sometimes you see that with players, and they, they have a tough time getting out, out of it. But anyway, I want to, um, you said, Okay, you know what I want to ask is about uh, Kirby Doc. You know the questions about Kirby Doc. Why hasn't he done this? Why hasn't he done that? He had some injuries, but I think it's a brilliant move by the coach to take him now. I don't know if it was the three years, all years, the scouting staff, but taking him and moving from center ice and put him to the wing to take some heat off that kid. Right, mm-hmm. and and not take some of that responsibility away, and and put him there. And the kid seems to me like he's flourishing. Thousand percent. I, I think that that decision was was like Jeff and Marty and I basically. We feel like we're uh, back in college, right? Like you know, my wife comes and she goes back to Boston to see the kids, and she's, but she's the most present, and and Jeff's. Uh, son is uh, finishing up high school before they move here and Martin's got a younger boy. So we're, we're like, you know, too often, what are you doing tonight? Let's go, let's grab dinner. Yeah. And, and we probably overanalyze and discuss everything. Um, but I, I think the, the decision was twofold. It was like, he might be the best player to play with those two. And then the other component of it was, 
maybe it takes, like you said, a little bit of the pressure off them. And when you're the third overall pick and there's ex- this expectation that you're going to score and you're going to do all these things, well, I think everybody would, you know, playing with, with Nick and Cole, you're going to have more opportunity to produce. Uh, I don't think we necessarily envisioned it would be at, at the level that Kirby's been scoring at. Knock on wood, hopefully he continues at that at that type of pace. But I, I think once for a young hockey player, once you've done it, once you've shown the world you can do it, it might be easier to move him back to the middle and say, okay, we got to work on these things and get his focus committed to the areas that he needs to improve on to be to be the best center iceman that he can be, because you've accomplished. Right? Yeah. You scored at, at, at that kind of a pace. So who knows? Maybe he stays in the wing. Maybe he goes back to center. Uh, my hope is at, at, at some point, whether it's this year or next, that he goes back to the middle and uh, becomes um, what we think he can become as a centerman. But listen, he's a great fit with those guys anyway. So one way or the other, it's a win. No, no question. He, he He's looking like the player they thought he was going to be. And, you know, um, I met uh, Rem Pitlick at the golf tournament, and honest to God, he seemed like he could have been in a boy band. I never, I never heard of this kid before. <laughs> he had the glasses on. I'm like, but I, like th- this kid to me, when I met him, just uh, seemed like a nice kid. I watched him on the ice last year. He, he did well. He comes back in here, and, and then you know, given the situation, and um, ha- had to put him on waivers, but. Uh, how difficult was that? And was, do you think he was going to get snapped up? Well, I, I, uh, I mean, first of all, I think it's always difficult. Um, you know, stating back to the start of our conversation, when you said, what's the hardest thing about being an agent, it's having hard conversations uh, with players. And it's worse being the bearer of bad news when you are the one that to a certain degree has an effect on the trajectory of a player's career, um, particularly for me coming from the agent side where you're always trying to, to take care of the player. But, um, you know, Rem, we think Rem's a good hockey player. We expect Rem's going to come back up here. He, he, he was struggling, uh, not having the same level of success. Uh, part of that was also opportunity. We got, we got number, we got a numbers issue here. Um, I know a lot of people think, we sent Rem down to um, try to get other guys going so we could trade them away. We're not, we're not, we're not going to do that. You know, we, we want like our biggest focus is on development. Otherwise we would just send the young guys down and they yeah. wouldn't have to clear away. Um, but I have been talking to teams and uh, trying to resolve the, uh, the numbers issue. So I had talked to just about every, you know, maybe 30 or 31 of the GMs in the league had a pretty good sense in terms of what their needs were. So when we, you know, although we weren't able to get a trade done, at least at, to this point, uh, we thought it was a reasonable calculated risk that Rem would clear waivers. And we wanted to go down and play and, and get his, get that feel back because the little plays that he made last year that connected all the time, they were going off a guy's skate or a stick blade or like, so sometimes you just got to go and get back to, like not overthink it, not be in this environment. Just go. He's going to go. He's, he's going to score a lot. And when he comes back up, the plays that were working a year ago that aren't working now, my guess is they're going to work again. I, I got a few more, if you don't mind. I didn't hate, sure. I know we've been going a while, but um, 
you can keep me here for a few hours talking hockey. Yeah, so cool. You're gonna I to- love that. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez, you know, I, I just got to tell you, like, you know, the, just the change in the atmosphere for the alumni, guys like myself, it is so different um, to be around the organization now than it was the last 10 years. And, you know, a lot of guys felt it from Lafleur to, to Serge Savad to the whole, the whole lot of guys who just didn't feel like it were welcome around there. And I get it. It's these time, these guys, it's their time. I remember when I, as a player here, Dickie Moore come in the room all the time, told Blake, Rocket, Henry, like <laughs> these guys are walking around and it was awesome. Like it was awesome to see these guys and they would come in and, Hey, how you doing? We talk, uh, they maybe come in during practice. It, it was awesome. But yeah, I like to personally say thank you for that because it's nice to see the the, the guys um, uh, around and, and being welcomed. I, I think it's a big thing. And uh, you Welcome. you guys have certainly done that. And yourself, Jeff, and Ma- Marty. And, you know. Well, to, to, uh, to the alumni that are out listening and uh, that we that haven't been around, like, yeah, we think it's great. We were the most – one of the most successful – professional sports organizations in sports, not just hockey. And, and we want players to appreciate the legacy of the Montreal Canadians, which ultimately was delivered by the, by the former players. And, and that we want them to be proud to be here. And we want this to become a destination that people want to come play hockey. And I, I never believed that. I mean, despite Vinny's situation, which was really unique, yeah. uh, you know, when you, you have however many years of, of, you know, whatever. But what we want Montreal to be is like, I always felt like hockey players are happy when hockey is going well. And that was, you know, dating back to Vinny fighting with Tortorella. And I said, like, when you face adversity as an athlete, when it's not going well, it, it, it comes home with you. It doesn't stay at the rink. Uh, I mean, probably comes home with everybody. If I have a bad day, it's going to come home with me. But it's at a higher level when you're an athlete. Uh, in part because you're known as that. Like so much of your identity is that. So, uh, you know, the reverse of that, I think, is if hockey's going well, if you're in a good environment to play hockey, you're happy. Yeah. Your wife's probably happier. Your family's probably <laughs> yeah. happier. You're just a better member of the family. So we're, we want Montreal to be that place where guys can have success and, and work hard and enjoy working hard together. Uh, and, you know, we think the alumni are part of that. That's awesome. And, and, you know, there's nothing like going to the rink when you're winning hockey games. When you're losing, boy, it it can be difficult. I don't – you know, I've been through both ends of it, so I certainly understand that. Um, recently we saw uh, the Bruins signing mm-hmm. a kid, Mitchell Miller, and, um, boy, the backlash was big. And, you know, uh, probably <laughs> – I don't know, I'm sure they thought about it, but and I'm not asking to comment on on them so much, but mm-hmm. going into when you talked about character, and I know the Bruins talk about character a lot. Every team wants character, guys, but sometimes I, I guess you put that aside because ooh, this guy might really be able to help us. We look at situation here. You inherited the draft in the Logan Mayu. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So when we talk about character, and I, this has been hashed out here in the newspapers before you got here, and mm-hmm. now you're here. How do you deal with that? And 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 are you convinced? Like, have you done your your due diligence? We heard Kim Neely say they did their due diligence. Then all of a sudden, something come up, which I didn't buy. But anyway. Have you done your due diligence on that player? And are you convinced he can be, he's he's changed that character and he he can come into this locker room someday if the league says okay and and make a difference. Yeah, I, I, again, like, I don't care whether we make a trade. We, we we make decisions and projections i don't care if it's about the talent of a player about the character of a player like unless you're like you know in his uh, backpack and get to listen to every moment and every second of a person's life we you know we go through it chris like you and i are having a conversation we may both think we're, we're good guys but you don't know me that well you may you, mm-hmm. know, you could do talk to a lot of people and, and try to figure that out we had the good fortune um of having logan around the team and the players all summer because of uh, he came here to do the rehab on his, on his shoulder to live with a billet family. And, and uh, so what we're seeing when you watch him interact and, and all that kind of stuff is, yeah, like this, he appears to be somebody that could fit. uh, That is a good character kid who made a a mistake. uh, And I don't ever want to listen. I got a daughter. Oh yeah. I don't want, diminish uh, the uh, the impact in any way of what he did but I also feel like and I hope one day and and that's going to require Logan as a character and by the way like this isn't it isn't like we signed Logan so it's over I mean this is Logan's going to have to is going to be held to a higher standard of, of conduct than any other hockey player and, and a mistake is going to cost him unlike any other or most other hockey players but so he's going to have to do this every day and 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 show um be an upstanding citizen and if he is and if he can do all of that and and deal with that extra uh, responsibility and still go on to be a really good hockey player my hope is that maybe he helps somebody from this happening again Maybe he helps 20 people right. from this happening again. He just, he helps uh, bring an awareness uh, that appears to be lacking with a lot of uh, young people, maybe probably old people too. I don't want to yeah. say that it's it's exclusive to young people, but young people are probably more apt to make a, to, to do. Uh, make a mistake say. or do something wrong because their immaturity, their, their life experience they don't have it um maybe the way they're brought up i I certainly get it and young kids it's the same with the 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 millet thing and you know to go back to that you know that kid's mother isaiah crothers his mom um apparently forgave the other kid who was involved in it but the other kid did it like one time and he went to her and to isaiah and made the apology and was contrite. This other kid did it on Snapchat. Come on, how how yeah. real can that be? How sincere can that be? So, and and 
I, I understand Logan is, you know, he paid his price over there and he, he, he certainly, I, I, I don't know if he did face to face to the girl. I think he did, but, uh, and I know he's been in, in taking, um, you know, some classes on stuff like that. The, and being a young kid and making those mistakes, I get it. But, you know, at some point, I think people deserve second chances, but you, you do have a lot to prove. Enough said. I got a thousand percent. I, I agree. And I, I know Cam made that comment that I believe people deserve second chances. And, um, uh, you know, you always hope that if you're given that second chance, you're, you're going to take advantage of it and, and be a better person, learn from, from what you did wrong. And, and if you really do, you do have the ability to add some additional positive uh, to it because if he plays for the Montreal Canadiens, he has a platform. And, yeah. and so we'll see where it all goes. But, um, you know, we think that Logan um, is the kind of guy that could fit in the locker room and be a good part of a good part of the team. But again, there is a there is a burden of responsibility that isn't going away. And it, I don't care if it's two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. It's always going to be there, no question about it. Um, yeah, a, a few more here. I got, um, I and I, I got to ask you about this guy, and I absolutely love him, and I think you know who I'm going to be talking about. He, um, I do. is Arbor Wi Fi. I, god, what a nickname! Brilliant nickname by Weidman, apparently. <laughs> um, I, and I was good at giving nicknames out back in the day, so when I heard this one, I'm there, oh, that is brilliant, but god. And I get it. The draft can be a crapshoot. We don't know. But how does this kid not get drafted in the O and then get drafted in the NHL? How, and then he comes here. And, and was it Rama who kind of sniffed him out? Rob Ramage? Or, but whoever did. I, Marty Lapointe, I know, was yeah. a big part of it. And Matt Turek. Uh, Man. And I don't know how much Rammer was. He may have been. Obviously, it was before I got here. Yeah. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you what a guy like Arbor is going to do, in my opinion. It's it's easy to, you, you know, we've seen some shift in terms of the draft where 18-year-old, like you know, your first-time eligibles would be almost exclusively the players that were drafted in the draft. And yeah. we drafted a couple of 19 year olds this year, right. That are going in and on their, uh, in Tourigny and Davidson are going on their 20 year old junior seasons. Um, and I think the success of somebody like Arbor Jack, I is going to make another NHL team one day watching a 19 year old undrafted player, having a lot of success in, in, I don't care if it's college or Western hockey league or anywhere else to say, heck, we got to try this. Like let's not, let's not be afraid to draft the kid just because he's gone through the draft twice and not been claimed. Yeah. I God, I, you know, and, and watching him and I love the fact that he can play. I love the fact that he's tough as nails. And I love the fact that he's going to let everybody on, that bench sit up a little taller mm-hmm. and, and, and I don't care what anybody says that goes a long way with a hockey team. And I've watched it for 10 years since I've been back here. You know, I've, I saw Petra ready get hurt and 
someone going up and patting, basically patting Char in the ass. And, hey, uh, you know, like th- th- that just does not go anywhere with me. And to see somebody there and the confidence it gives other guys and in, in that security, uh, I think it's awesome. What a fine that kid is. And, and a nice kid. I had dinner with him at the Bell Center that night. I think maybe uh, someone sat him with me for a reason, but uh, <laughs> I, I I loved it. He's a great kid. Um, okay, um, maybe we can wrap it up with. I guess what what do you think? Um, I guess what's your biggest surprise about? No, no. Before I go to that, the, the salary cap and dealing with the price thing in the long term injured reserve and, and getting that money on the shelf. How surprised were you? Uh, how difficult did you think the job was going to be to deal with this salary cap? Because boy, talk about up against it when you got here, right? That's, that's done. That makes your job so much more difficult. You and Jeff and the scouting staff and the coaching staff. Yeah, I think, listen, we were in a difficult situation cap wise, no question. Uh, in in part, certainly when you have Shea and, and Kerry on the books and, and there's some finer points of, of uh, how the, the cap is calculated uh, during long-term injury process and how, how things are treated that I actually didn't have 100% knowledge of. We didn't need it from an agency perspective that that John Cedric is, who's fantastic. We call him Gray Cedric because we never get <laughs> Black or white yeah, answer. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyways, he, he, you know, so you know, he we basically sat down and went through what what these issues were and and started to explore options to try to uh, alleviate or, or address some of these issues. And I, listen, if we have success as an organization moving forward, if the young players have success, we'll continue to to have to deal with it. It's, it's the way that the uh, league wants it. Right, so you can't have a 1970s era uh, Montreal Canadiens that wins year after year because the players are having too much success and they're going to cost too much money. Um, but that's part of character to me too, no. right? Like I represented Patrice Bergeron, and I can remember doing his first contract coming out of the entry level system. It was the first time we had a cap. No. I think it was 37 million, and uh, you know, I, I had said to him, you know, we push him like. Don't worry about the other deals. Like, you know, I think Joe Thornton coming out got three years at about total of five million, so under two million a year. But he had bonuses and different things that we don't have anymore. And I had said to him, "I think you're five times five. And he's like, "Nobody gets that." And yeah. I said, "Yeah, but the world just changed." <laughs> so, anyways, but I also had said to the Bruins at that point, like, in the old days, we paid players for the services they provided previously under this new system, we can, we can reallocate the dollars and pay them to your best players. And this is how you start it. And I said, plus, if I were you guys, I'd rather come back. You need a player to take a discount to be able to keep everybody together. Why not let them get financial security, establish roots in the community, then come back and ask them to take a discount. Don't do it now and then pay, pay the mother load when he's ready to make the most money. And I remember when, when his contract was up, he said, what do you think? And I said, well, you're worth X. And he said, we said we were going to take less. Yeah. And I said, 
I said, well, I didn't say you're going to take less. I said, why wouldn't you? This is when a player would be in a better position to take less. And he started laughing and he said, uh, I want, what do you think about three times five? And I said, I think they're going to send a helicopter to pick you up. There'll be a red carpet and they're going to roll you into that and make you sign right away. And he did. And then his next deal came up and he called. He goes, what do you think I'm worth? I said, I don't know. Highest paid players, eight and a half million. I think at the time it was, I think it was Perry and Getzlaff actually were the two highest. And I said, you're, you're, you're nine and a half. He's like, how did I become nine and a half? And I said, well, <laughs> you're, because you're better in my opinion. And because there's a team four and a half hours north of, northeast of here who uh, would is their your team's greatest rival they're dying for a first line center they're dying for a captain like it's just a premium and he said yeah but if i make that kind of money we'll never win and i want to win i want six and a half and i was like six and a half you got to be kidding me um but and i said to him you're like that's great the problem is you can't make everybody else take less yeah and he always said all i can do is lead by example i'll do my part and it'll be up to everybody else whether they want to fall online or not. And that type of character, there's a reason why the Bruins have had that kind of success. And Brad Marchand refused to take more than Patrice Bergeron. That's unbelievable. It, 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 to, to me, that is just uh, okay. character personified. Some people would call it stupidity, but I certainly understand where that kid's coming from. And, man, I, you know, I knew they took discounts, but hearing that story – Man, it, that kid is to me even all the more impressive um, now. Uh, that's incredible. <laughs> that. Yeah. So we're hopeful that down the road that we're going to have guys that want to be part of this organization. Like we're going to spend the maximum that we're allowed to spend to try to build a winner, but it's it's hard if everybody gets every dollar uh, that they could otherwise get. That'll be their choice. Uh, but if you have good character people around uh, who care about winning and care about the group, then hopefully you have a better chance of finding a way to make the puzzle work. So uh, in saying that and, and looking at that, you know, I almost, it's almost if you draft well uh, in this league, if you draft well, it's almost like you get penalized, right? If you drop mm -hmm. down, you know, when it comes time to sign those contracts that come out of the entry levels and well, geez, now I can't keep everybody. Is there a way in the collective bargaining agreement moving forward that 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 could be dealt with? Like, here's one thing, not that I thought of. I've, I've heard of it, and um, I thought it made sense that you could spend whatever you went, want on one player in your team. He doesn't count against the cap. One player. on it. Now, the owners probably would never do that, but would that help alleviate some of the stuff that's going on when it comes to not being able to keep those really good players you draft. Yeah. I mean, I think anything that somehow took a, uh, a dollar or X number of dollars that otherwise would go against your threshold and, and put it away. I think major league soccer has two players that don't count. Okay. Um, I would prefer, I don't love that from a team building perspective because now we're anointing the guy yeah. Uh, I know the NFL has the franchise tag player, you know, the NBA used to, and I, I haven't paid attention to what they, what their CBA looks like today. They used to have what they called the Larry bird exception, 
right? And you'd have a player whose cap hit counted as a percentage of the actual dollar amount. I was wondering and thinking, you know, and I haven't put a lot of detail into the thought process, but what if a guy came out of the entry level, okay, and you sign him and year one, whatever his number was, it counted at a discount against that number for the cap. And then year two, that percentage went up and maybe by year three or year four, you're you're counted at 100% of the number. Um, Does it allow a little bit longer runway because the problem you have is development. You look at this team, right? You have development yeah. and you have like the fan base wants to get behind and identify with the players and you go out and you draft these young guys and you can't afford them right away. Then you take away from creating those, you know, like, identif- like having a face to the organization that's more than the logo. Yeah. And we see that now, right, with Suzuki and Caulfield. And Galga was a face here for so years, so many years in price and still is, mind you. Um, uh, looking at your job here now, and, and I, I'm going to ask you this question and, and I can let you go. I know I had you for a long time here, but and I appreciate it. What is for you the biggest, I guess, surprise of your job, taking this job so far, what's the, has been the biggest kind of like, whoa, moment for you? I think the, the, certainly, even though I grew up here, it's, I think it's the, the, the following, the, the passion, the intensity of the fan base. And I don't say that in a negative way. I actually think it's a positive it's just more than I remember. Uh, that would be one. Um, I think the business of it, not the hockey side of it, right? Like, uh, I, I love hockey. Like, we've been on for an hour and a half. I could, we could save another hour and a half. Uh, um, like I said, you might have to press the red button to get me off <laughs> if we're talking hockey. Well, I appreciate it. There's a business part of it too, and that that part, whether be it you know trying to build out what we wanted in, in hockey operations. Like how do we go about building out our analytics group? How do we go about building out our development group? How do we go about our, our sports science and training and medical and, and then managing the people, right? That, that was probably a, a component of the business. That's not hockey specific, um, building a culture and making sure that, you know, contributing to, to that process. Um, because to me, the culture is not limited to the locker room. Um, that, that was probably, you know, you, when you think about the job, you just think about the hockey piece of the job and and there's the other pieces of the job. And that was pretty time intensive component of the job early on. Um, and, and maybe we're a little more hockey focused now, but those would probably be two of the surprises to me. Okay. If you, if you could take one part of your job and just give it to someone else, what would it be? So you do this part. I think Gordon said you would tell you that that's all I do every day. <laughs> my wife would say that too. Uh, in fact, my brother used to say, you spend more time trying to delegate than it would take you to do what you have to do. Um, there was one part. Oh. I love 
I enjoy negotiating and it was part of my previous career. It's a part yeah. of this career. Um, it's harder on this side because you're making decisions about players' careers and you're making decisions about like when we trade guys away, we're like, we're taking a member of their family away. Like he may have been in that locker room for six or seven years and he may be a central figure in that locker room and we take him out and that, 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 um, it has an impact. Yeah. And, and I probably wasn't, uh, maybe that's another element of surprise for me. I wasn't as prepared for it and I don't like it. And, uh, but I don't think there's there's such thing as a job where everything's perfect. I hear you. Now that negotiating part that you talked about, like you've done it your whole career, um, doing it on this side, um, w- what's the difference there? Like for you, you know, you're you're promoting someone, and you want to get them the most money you can, best contract, and get them. And now, sure, you want to be fair with someone, but you know, it's like those. Uh, I used to hear about the arbitration cases, right? You go in, the team fucking rips the player apart, you know, like to to make their point. Um, but how's that? How's that on this side, the negotiation side? How different is it, I guess? Well, I always – it's funny. I, I felt like um, when I was young in the agent business – and trying to make a name for yourself, you, you were trying to get the best deal and you didn't care about anything other than the best deal, make your player the most money. And, and, um, and that was really the era that we were in, right? There was no cap. It was Bob Goodnow, you know, saying it was all macro, no micro. Like yeah. You, you got to get the right deal and it pushes the whole group and, and whatever not. Um, but as we moved on, I, I, especially in a cap world, like I always felt like, getting you wanted your player to be paid commensurate with his value you didn't want you clearly as an agent don't want to have a bunch of undervalued players you're probably not going to have be in business for very long but having overvalued players wasn't great either because they got stuck in this new cap world where the guy makes too much money he's in a bad situation we can't move him you had all these kinds of problems so i always felt like getting a win-win in the contract was great uh and i i really feel that here on this side of things too you know, generally when you're negotiating trades, most of the time teams are coming from different perspectives, right? So we do a trade with Calgary or Florida last year or Colorado. They're trying to win a Stanley Cup and we're trying to put the pieces in place for the future or they don't have money. Uh, you know, we didn't have money. Like, you know, you you look at it and say, okay, well, we're not going to be able to keep Lekkanen and this guy and that guy and keep them all under the cap. I want Lekkanen to go oh. Stanley Cup, be yeah. a superstar. I hate, you know, he's really close with Galley and yeah. some of these guys I hated like pulling him out of here. And, um, but I'm like, it's not like when you do this, when you do a trade, you hope that every player you trade away fails and, and you win the trade. You just, you hope that at the end of the day, we moved ourselves in, in the direction we're hoping to go. And that the other team gets what they want out of it all. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you brought him up, Lekin, and uh, love that player. He was a, what what a trooper he was, and and oh. a coach's dream. That kid, no question Never about it. 
No problem. Only guy. Like, it's like lucky. I remember ironically ended up being 24 hours before I traded him. But uh, like a lot of the guys were nervous and uptight. So I was trying to communicate with them, knowing how players feel at that time of the year. Um, and his name was out a lot. So I, I saw him after the game. I'm like, lucky. You haven't come to see me. You haven't asked anything. He's like, I figured uh, if you if there was anything I needed to know, you'd tell me, and it's not none of my business. <laughs> and I said, Well, so listen, I can't promise you that we wouldn't trade you, um, but we're not trying to trade you. People are calling on it, and like unless it's something that we we feel we we have to do, we won't do it right now. Um, and he said, Okay, like yeah. Yeah, and I, I I tell you, I was so happy for him winning the Stanley Cup, seeing him with his dad there, his family. Like, you know, he, like I said, that kid was a trooper here. He was really, really good. Um, I'm going to get one last one. Okay. Jonathan Druin. Been kind of mm-hmm. a tumultuous time here. I remember when he came here, um, and they talked to him about dealing with the pressure of being a French-Canadian kid coming back to Montreal, how are we going to deal with that? And he said, oh, I won't have a problem with it. Well, he's had a difficult time here. And, again, I'm not here to throw this kid under the bus. I did um, recently put a – last season put out a, a, a comment on him that I, I apologized to him for because I was being a fresh bastard and uh, frustrated with the play. I didn't know the circumstance and, and should have held back. I didn't, but I have since gone and looked him in the eye and I apologize to him, but I, he always is leaving me. And I think the fan base wanting more, um, how, how difficult that situation, how, how difficult is that to deal with when you, you're looking more f- for more from a player, or at least an, there's an expectation there that, we need this much from you and you're not getting it. Well, it's funny. I called him into the office in the summer and, and, you know, tried to, I I've represented players. Angelo Esposito was, you know, a can't miss kid. Heck, my brother was kind of a can't miss kid at 16 who, who you know, played three games in the NHL. So I, I called him in and said, listen, I don't, I know a lot of people have a lot of expectations for you. And I imagine that at some point it just becomes hard to live up to everybody else's expectations. And I, I don't know what you have for yourself. Um, you know, we just want you to come and enjoy being at the rink and playing hockey. And, you know, you don't need to score 40 goals and you don't need to do this. Just have fun with it. Make the most of it and enjoy it. Um, he's actually a really good guy. Yeah. He's a really nice guy. I mean, he, you see the talent. You'd love for him to be more productive. Um, could it come? I think anything can happen. Right. Um, so I, I'm a eternal optimist, and I'll I'll um, I'll hope uh, that uh, Joe has success, and um, you know whether it's this year or or you know next year or another year, right. whether that's here or somewhere else, who knows? But but he is a really good guy, and and it's it's. You know, like I didn't play. I, I know more vicariously through others. I didn't play at, at the NHL level, but it's just I always felt that it's harder to be good between the ears. Yeah. That's the hardest part. It's like how do you deal with the stress and the pressure? And I, I remember another Montrealer, Matt Lombardi, who I represented. Um, 
he, he had been injured at one point and he was out and he was like, I got so much energy, Kent. Like, I feel like I could jump over like, my house. And I said, well, Matt, you play like 15 minutes a game, eight, 80 games a year, 82 games a year. I said, you got like 70-year-olds running ultra marathons. And you know what they do the day after when they, get, when they wake up? They go run 10 miles just to loosen up. Yeah. I said, how much of your fatigue do you really think is physical? And how much of it do you just think it's the drain, the mental drain of trying to prepare for the 15 minutes that you're going to play? It's like you go to the morning, you know, the day before you go to practice, you come home, you're thinking about your game. You got to eat. You got to sleep at the right time. You got to do all this other stuff. You wake up, you go to your morning skate. You're thinking about the game. You do it. You come back home. You got to eat at the right time. You got to have your nap. You wake up, you think about it, you go perform. And those 15 minutes may not be good. Then you stay up all night you know, worrying about how you weren't good. And then you go back at it again the next day. And I said, I, I really think the people that are the, the athletes that are best equipped to deal with that end up certainly getting the most of their potential. Right. You know, Connor McDavid's Connor McDavid, uh, clearly athletically superior to, to a lot of other athletes. My guess is Connor McDavid's also pretty well-equipped mentally to, to deal with the pressure that comes with being Connor McDavid. Yeah, for sure. He's shown it so far. Listen, um, Kent Hughes, um, I appreciate you taking the time. And I got to tell you, um, it's refreshing to see what you've done here in the short time you've been here. Uh, this organization seems to me like it's on the right path. Um, I cannot wait. Uh, to see one day, hopefully, this team back in the finals and, and lifting that Stanley Cup again. And I hope you're here to see it and be part of it because you certainly, um, I look at what's going on here and it's, for me, the most promising it's been here since I, I've been back here 12 years now. To me, it's the most promising group and, 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 and like things looking up like since I've been back. So um, I want to wish you all the luck in the world and, and and hope one day you can put one of those on your finger. Be awesome. <laughs> that would be great. Well, I appreciate you having me, and and thank you for your kind words. 